Philippians chapter 4, if you can, would you stand, please? Let's read verses 1 through 3. Philippians 1, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I exhort Yodia and I exhort Suntuhe to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Please be seated. Let us pray. Lord, we come to you once again and we are beggars. We need your help. I need your help to preach. The congregation needs your help to listen attentively. And both of us will give an account to you. I will give an account of my preaching. The congregation will give an account of how they listen. So we cry out for your help. Holy Spirit, please empower us. Lord, we pray for your church abroad. We pray for brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world right now. Pray that your word would be proclaimed in Africa, in Europe, in Asia, South, North America. Bless your church, Lord. Pray that your kingdom would come with righteousness peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Thank you for this lovely church. We pray for those who are not with us. We pray they'll be drawing them to you. Comfort your people today, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. It was in 2017 the, there was a massive issue with Oroville in California, Oroville Dam, there was a spillway. And at first they could not tell why the massive water spill took place. And then they found out the earlier inspections had reported that there were very tiny, small cracks that were never fixed. So you imagine a massive dam ever been close to a dam, you know how big it is, how much water there is around. And, and sometimes you think, oh, it's just a tiny, almost invisible crack. No big deal, right? With all the pressure of the water, pretty soon that tiny crack will become a larger crack. And sometimes an earthquake that we cannot even feel here can actually create such a damage in a dam that had a small crack that all the water now is spilled. If there is any city around, you have seen images of city covered in water. Hundreds of people dead. And... That's what's taking place in the church of Philippi. Paul can see that there is a very small crack in that church. Under God's providence, there is a, a conflict between two church members in the church of Philippi. 
And Paul knows that if that crack is not fixed, if that conflict is not taken care, that will become such a damage to the church that they will lose they will lose their impact on society. So Paul is alerting them. And I want to use this text to alert all of us. Right now, not that I know, we are not having any conflict issues in our church as of now. But we had in the past, and I'm sure we will have in the future. That's part of living together, and especially in a church where we have the the grace of living close to each other. Love each other. Welcome each other to our homes. And being in a place where there is still sin in all of us, it's just the expectation that conflicts will come. But here, in, in God's grace, we have a wonderful remedy for when conflict comes. And it's right here. It's interesting that Proverbs 17.14 says, Starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam. Proverbs 17.14 So drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. And that's exactly what Paul is calling these two wonderful sisters in the church of Philippi to do. Just quit it. Stop before you create harm to the whole body of Christ. So, as we come to Philippians chapter 4, let me just remind you of the context. Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, Paul is bringing to conclusion all that he was teaching earlier. And now he starts giving very practical exhortations to how those Christians are to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we come to verse 2, it's important for us to know the historical context so we can better understand Paul's words here. So you remember, according to Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, they planted the church in Philippi. They came to Macedonia the first church in Europe to be planted. And Paul plants that church. You remember Lydia, the first convert. She's the first one saved in Philippi. And then he had the, the, the growth demons that Paul cast the demons out of her. He goes to prison. And then the man who is in charge of the prison gets saved. And we have a church in Philippi. And Paul and, and the church of Philippi, they have this beautiful partnership, this beautiful fellowship in the gospel. A brotherhood between Paul and the church in Philippi. So once Paul gets arrested, he goes to, he goes to prison. And we don't know where he is in prison. Was it in Rome? Was it in Ephesus? Was it in Caesarea? We have no idea. But the, the, the church in Philippi hears about Paul being in prison. And what do they do? They sent Epaphroditus, one of their most beloved members to go and visit Paul and bring an offering to Paul. Remember now, back in those days when he went to prison, the prison system of Rome did not provide food for you. So you had to have 
people who loved you enough to come and bring you goods and food and money. So that's what the church in Philippi is doing. They're sending Epaphroditus to help Paul, to provide for Paul. And now you can imagine as Paul and Epaphroditus are together and they're talking about the church. Before Epaphroditus leaves, he tells Paul, Paul, there is a... There is an issue in our church. Our beloved sisters, Iodia and Syntyche, they're having an issue. So he explains to Paul the problem that he can see in the church. Frank Thuman, his commentary, he says, It's not likely... It's not likely that Epaphroditus left, however, before delivering to Paul a through report on the Philippians' progress in the faith. Paul's generally positive tone in the letter probably means that the report was basically good, though one point of concern is difficult to miss. The Philippians were not united. A quarrel, a fight between Yodi and Syntyche had apparently infected the entire church. With the result, the arguing and complaining had begun to take place and plague the church and tarnish its witness before the wider unbelieving society. Without unity, the Philippians would not only hinder their witness to the gospel, but they would find it difficult to withstand the trials of persecution that they continue to experience at the hands of their unbelieving neighbors. And that's why, since Paul cannot come in person, he needs ink and papyrus. He addresses that problem through a letter, and that's the letter of Philippians. He's addressing one of the issues with that church. So that's all we have here. I hope that helps you is the what's taking place for Paul to be writing these words. And here's the outline of this morning's sermon. Briefly, we're going to look at verse 1. Who they, the Philippians, and we can apply to ourselves who they or we are, and that leads to how we are to live or how they are to live. That's the Christian life. It's who we are in Christ that leads to a lifestyle. It's not that living in certain way makes us Christians. It's because we are Christians that we must live in a certain way. Amen? That's very important. So, let's briefly see who they are or who we are. And you see in verse 1 of chapter 4, begins with, Therefore, and every time you have therefore, you need to look at the context. And that's what Paul is doing now. He's... He's bridging, he's connecting all that he was teaching earlier now to this final exhortations. And it's not that easy to see in English, but in Greek it's very visible, especially when you compare chapter 1, verse 27, and chapter 2, verse 2, with this section in chapter 4. And you see the repetition of the same words in Greek, so that is clear that Paul is now binding together. He's closing the letter by bringing the things that he spoke earlier to this final application to the church. We see the repetition of the word to stand firm, steko, in Greek. 
striving side by side, my joy, the same mind. The same words are repeated now in chapter 4. So, in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul describes who they are and who we are in Christ. So, Paul says, therefore, my brothers... They are brothers and sisters. They have been adopted by God. They have been birthed into the kingdom of God. They are not enemies. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, that's their identity. That's who they are. Therefore, they must live like loving, caring, being patient as brothers and sisters. They are not only brothers and sisters. They are beloved. Beloved, that's who they are in Christ. They are the the object of God's love. And they are to be the object of each other's love. The same way that God sees them as their beloved, the church is supposed to look at its members as beloved. I love you. Because we are in Christ, I love you. They are supposed to see each other as the object of great longing, longed for. The same way that God desires each one of His children to be in His presence, the church members are to look at each other as the object of this great longing. I long to be with you. My joy, not a source of grief, Not a source of pain. Christians are to look at each other as the source of inward delight. Because we are in Christ, I'm supposed to look at Jesse, Carson, Sam, Abby, and see them as source of great delight. Not a source of pain and grief. My joy. My crown. I'm supposed to look at my brothers and sisters and see them as my crown. A public symbol of honor and victory in Christ. They're supposed to see each other as soldiers. Stand firm. That's a military word. Paul is talking to the church as an army. Stand firm as soldiers. And they are to look at each other as band of brothers, as soldiers, not as enemies. And they are in Christ. You stand firm in the Lord. They are Christians. That's very important. That's their identity. That's who they are. They are brothers and sisters. They are Christians. They are in Christ. They are to love one another. Now, Paul can bring the exhortation. Do you see? Who we are now orchestrates how we are to live. And that's what leads to verse 2. How they are to live. So he says, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree, that's the ESV, or to live in harmony in the Lord. So now Paul, he commands them to stand firm, and now he's going to explain how they are to stand firm. Verse 1, this broad command, this broad exhortation. Can you imagine, I tell you guys, stand firm in the Lord. Then you're going to expect how. How are we supposed to stand firm in the Lord? And that's what Paul is doing now. He's explaining how this church is supposed to stand firm, united as an army in the Lord. And the first thing he tells them is to 
Stop with the quarrels. Put to death the fights. And if you read this sentence in Greek, you see that there is an earnest gravity in Paul's part as he's speaking that. Because twice he repeats the word, I exhort, I entreat, I urge. There is this eagerness and urgency in Paul's heart. So, as we look at verse 2, first of all, let us look at the object of the exhortation. The object of the exhortation. It says, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche. That's the object of the exhortation. Two women. That's very important. Both nouns, Iodia, Suntuhe, her name, Syntyche, they are feminine nouns. And he used feminine pronouns, so there are two women in the church. And these names, there are historical records that they were very normal names in Roman times. Iodia, Syntyche. We know according to Luke's, to Luke's account in Acts 16 that there were some very important women in Philippi when Lydia got saved. So, we can imagine that the church in Philippi had a good number of faithful, solid women in that church. What we know about these two ladies, what can we know about Yodia and Syntyche? First of all, that they were members of the local church. And you might ask, how do you know that? Because Paul expects them to be in church Sunday when they are reading the letter. And also we know that they were part of the church because they knew each other. They knew their names. That's part of being a member of the church. You know each other. So they are members of the church. They are faithful members. Paul says in, in verse 3 that they had fought side by side with Paul. Like good soldiers, they fought with Paul side by side. And those are very impressive credentials for Paul to call them faithful soldiers. So, it's important here, they are not, they are not immature women. They are not baby in the faith. They are actually very mature women. In the church. And that gives us hope and also it's a warning, right? To see two mature women in the Lord now having a crack in their relationship. We'll talk more about that later. So we see the object, these two faithful members in the church. Now the reason, the reason for the exhortation, why is Paul exhorting these two ladies? Why is he commanding them to agree in the Lord? We don't know exactly why, but we know that there is some problem in their relationship. That's why Paul is commanding them to get back together in the Lord. What is the problem? We don't know. We have no idea. And I think that's the beauty and the wisdom of God. Because if we knew the source of the problem... Do you know what we would do? We would just, we're, we're just going to wait for that problem to apply this passage. So, for example, if Paul had explained to us that the problem between the two was that Yodia had a tea party for the ladies and she forgot to invite Syntyche, do you know what we would do? We would only apply this passage when, when there was an issue with a tea party in the church. 
That's how we are. If we knew that the problem was because uh, Yodia had her feelings hurt because she thought that Sintiki had made a bad comment about her children, we would just, oh, just when we have a problem with people making comments of, so they see that the Lord in His wisdom, He doesn't tell us. And it's broad, so we may pay attention to what's taking place here. We can also be certain that the issue between the two ladies is not doctrinal or theological. What do I mean by that? We know that it's not that either Sintiki or Yodia is teaching false teachings in the church. It's not a, po- a problem of heresy. It's not a problem of bad theology. Otherwise, we know that Paul would rebuke them, would correct whoever is wrong, just like he does. Beware of the dogs. So we know that's not a problem with false teachings. We also know that's not a problem with a very clear moral obligation that we have according to the Scriptures. So we know that's not a problem of gossip. We know it's not a problem of lying. We know it's not a problem of stealing. Or sexual immorality. Otherwise, Paul would be very clear and tell who is wrong. So, even though the disagreement is not a very clear doctrinal, it's amazing that Paul uses doctrine to fix the problem. Isn't that amazing? The problem is not theological, but the solution is always theology. The problem might not be doctrinal, but the solution is doctrine. And as Paul will show, is the doctrine of Christ. So, the reason, we don't know the specifics, but we know that these two beloved sisters, that one day they were fighting side by side. There was one time when they were getting each other's back and protecting each other. Now they are biting each other's back. They are fighting with each other. How about the nature? The nature of the conflict. Look how Paul says, I exhort or I entreat, that's the ESV. The NIV has I plead. The NASB has I urge. That's parakaleo. The word has a, a, a wide range of meanings, can mean to comfort. But we know that in this context, Paul is not comforting. I comfort Iodia, that's not what he's saying. Because that's the same word that is used for the Holy Spirit. So, you see, you need a context. I agree with, the, with this lesson that says to urge strongly, to appeal, to urge. It's interesting that this word was used for those in higher places in the army, encouraging the troops as they are going to battle. And that's the picture we have here of Paul as the commanding officer who loves deeply this band of brothers, exhorting and urging these precious soldiers, Yodi and Sintiki, to be together in the Lord. And look at what Paul says. I exhort Yodia, and he doesn't say I exhort Yodia and Sintiki. He says, I exhort Yodia and I exhort Sintiki. That's very important. Frank Thuman, he writes, 
to use the term before each name communicates a desire to be even-handed. Not to take sides, but to exhort each participant in the dispute with equal firmness. In a letter that would, be, that would have been read to the entire congregation, Paul probably considers such even-handedness of paramount importance. So, every, every conflict that we have, we have two Christians. Let's talk about conflict in the church, conflict about in the Christian community. You have two people who still have sin dwelling. Sin is not reigning, but sin is dwelling in our lives. Amen? Sin is no longer reigning, but still dwelling. And many times it shows its ugly head. And, and sometimes it's clear in, a, in an argument, in a fight, sometimes it's clear, the Word of God is clear about who is right and who is wrong. But there are times when you have a quarrel, when you have a fight, and actually you cannot tell precisely who is right and who is wrong. And that's Paul's situation here. Probably as Epaphroditus is telling him the issue between the two sisters, he's like, honestly, I cannot point my finger to who is wrong and who is right. So what does he do? Both need to humble themselves. Both of these ladies need to look to the cross and humble themselves. And the way that Paul talks, I exhort, I exhort Yodia, I exhort Syntyche, it's Paul's way of saying, if I was there in the church, I would grab Yodia by her hands, take her to the side, look at her face, and say, Yodia, my dear, loving sister, stop it. Stop it. And the same thing with Syntyche. He would grab Syntyche by the hands, look at her face, and say, Syntyche, I exhort you. Stop it. Put to death. Fix this crack before the whole church will be harmed by this relationship with Yodia. Dennis Johnson, he writes, Who is obligated to take the first step in pursuing reconciliation? Who must be the first one to pursue reconciliation? Jesus placed that burden squarely on the shoulders of the one who had initiated the offense. Oh, you were the one who committed the sin, therefore you must go. But then, look at that. But then Jesus turned things around, calling victims to seek out those who had sinned against them, like a shepherd seeking a lost sheep. Both the offender and the offended must take the first step. So without taking sides or distributing blame, Paul issues equal appeals to Yodia and Syntyche. Please, let the friction cease and let the one mind that's yours in Christ prevail. So all of us, brothers and sisters, all of us have the duty and the responsibility to pursue and preserve the unity in the church. It's not like, oh, can't hurt me. I'm not talking to can't anymore. He hurt me. Or if he hurt me, I need to go to him. I need to go to him. Can't we, we, we need to fix this relationship. Here's what's taking place. 
That's exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 16 through 18. And he used the same Greek word that, Paul, that, that he's using here to have the same mind. Live in harmony. Thronel, the Greek word. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, what? As far as it depends on you. Make the effort to live peaceably with all. So, Paul is exhorting both of them. And here is the heart of the exhortation. I exhort Yodia, I exhort Syntyche to Fronel in the Lord. I, I think agree is a very weak translation. The ESV has agree in the Lord. I think it's a very weak translation. The word Fronel brings the idea of thinking, acting, and feeling. It's a lifestyle. Acting, thinking, feeling all together in the Fronel. It's one of Paul's favorite words throughout Philippians. Many times he used the word here. And one example that we can see the meaning of this word is by looking at Romans 8, verse 5. Look how Paul says, For those who live according to the flesh, do what? Set their minds, not just the intellect, but the feelings. The thinking, the acting. What Paul is saying is those who are in the flesh, those who are not Christians, those who are not in Christ, they have a fronel, they have a mindset of acting, feeling, acting that's according to the flesh. So Paul says, I exhort Yodi and exhort Syntyche to to have the same mindset, to live in harmony in the Lord. I like what Hawthorne, he writes, he says, the richness of, of meaning in the phrase, the same mindset, exceeds any single trans translation such as to agree. Because it embraces not only the idea of possessing a common mind, a, 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 a the same mind, but also of having identical feelings and attitudes towards each other. Then he says, a total, a total harmony of life. And then you might be asking, but, but how is that? How can we have the same fronel? How can we have the same mindset of thinking, feeling, and acting the Lord? What does it mean? And then you need to remember that Paul explained that already. Look with me in chapter 2. He already explained that. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, and this if here is not if of questioning, but it's an if of certainty. It would be since. Since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort from love, since there is participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same way. Fronel, the same mind, having the same love, being full accord in one way. 
pronoun. And then he explains how we are going to have the same pronoun. Do nothing, nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he goes on and he gives the mind of Christ, the pronoun of Christ. So they see how how can we how can we have this pronoun in Christ? And Paul answers Stop looking at only your own interest. My feelings are hurt. My desires are not fulfilled. Place others above yourself. Only a cruciform lifestyle, a life that's Crucified with Christ, we we enable the church to preserve the unity that He bought with His blood. Each member must be thinking, how, how am I taking my cross and following Christ in this situation? Rick has an argument with Jesse, and we cannot tell. It's a, it's a, a clear doctrinal issue. The question is, how how each one of you is taking your cross and following Christ to, the, to Calvary. How? That's what Paul is teaching us. Conflict management. You look to the cross. You look to others above yourself. It's amazing that Paul does not speak of separation, but reconciliation. There is a holy obligation of reconciliation among these members and he tells us, he gives us the great example, in verse, starting verse 5, that is the mindset of Christ. And that's why he can say, he, that's how he finishes, the grounds for the exhortation. Look at the grounds for the exhortation. I exhort Iodia and exhort Syntyche to agree where? In a compromise? Hopefully one of you will compromise something here. No, 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 in the Lord. The same mindset of thinking, feeling, and acting is in the Lord. And that's why Paul says, I can commend you. I can demand from you and I can exhort you because of your union with Christ. Remember, who we are determines how we live. And it's because they are in Christ, they are able and commanded to have that same mindset of Christ, of placing others above themselves. Looking not to their own interests. So, here is Paul. Powerful exhortation to that church. He reminds them that they must, they must preserve the unity of the church because of their union with Christ. And they must remember that there is a friction, there is a problem between this relationship here, but the relationship is not only between the two church members. Who is in the middle of the two church members? Who united those two church members together? Christ is in the middle. So every time I have an issue with a brother and sister, I must remember that that issue is not only with David, but there is a third person there, the person of Christ who died and shed His blood to unite us together. 
And we, in most, in most instances, uh, I would say that most of the arguing, most of the bickering, most of the problems in the church is not doctrinal. It's not a problem of heresy. It's actually a problem of, I got my feelings hurt. You know, look at most people who left here, not in a godly way, but those who left in an ungodly way, they can never pinpoint a, a, a doctrinal problem. It's my feelings got hurt. I'm out of here. And the truth is, when our feelings are hurt, if we look to the cross, if we look to Christ, if we behold Him hanging on that cross, let me tell you, all those hurt feelings, they don't become such a big deal anymore. And that's what Paul is doing here. So, let me bring some practical application for our church. Let me finish with some practical application for, from verse 2. As I said in the beginning, I don't know of any problem in the church that we are having among two members or more. Praise the Lord! But I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet to tell you that we will have problems in relationships. We will have. And here's the Lord giving us in His grace this wonderful foundation for us how to avoid headache when we have the cracks in our relationships. First of all, I would like to remind you that this letter with these names were read in public to the church. So, now it would be wonderful if you can just imagine being in the first century and you are in Philippi. You know that Epaphroditus came back from Paul and you know that he has a letter and that Sunday when we gather together, the, the letter will be read to the whole church. We are going to find out about Paul. And we come to church and there the prayers. We are all praying together. We sing hymns. And then comes the moment when one of the pastors or elders stand up. And beloved congregation, we have the honor of reading one of Paul's letters that our brother Epaphroditus brought with him. And you can just imagine as this leader in the church is reading the letter, the tears, the tears as they hear about Paul's affection. Oh, I long for you. I long for you with the affections of Christ. And Paul saying that he's in, in chains and he doesn't know if he's going to live or die. And then the joy to know that Paul is praying for us as a church. And then things get very serious as Paul warns them about the false teachers. You can just imagine the church. Beware of the dogs, the mutilators, the tension in the church. And then Paul starts talking about his testimony. And then he talks about the glory of heaven, our glorified bodies. And suddenly, he drops this bomb. I exhort Yodia. I exhort Sintiki. Can you just imagine being in church that morning? You're not expecting that. Paul didn't prepare us. He didn't say, oh, like he does 
with the church in Corinth. I have heard of this and this and this. Oh, I have heard of these problems. He doesn't do that. He just drops the two names to the whole congregation. Now, can you imagine be sitting right by Iodia? Some of you start moving your chair away from her. Others would elbow her. Can you imagine being by Sintiki? You are the object of Paul's exhortation. It's public. It's a public reading to a public gathering. Can you imagine if one Sunday I'm preaching a passage and we elders think it would be wise to address the problem between two members in the church from the pulpit. And as we are bringing the application of a passage, a passage like this, and I say, I exhort, I exhort Hannah, I exhort Emily, not that they have anything, Agree, have the same mindset in the Lord. The crack in your relationship is harming the whole body. Tom, I exhort you. Jesse, I exhort you. You guys need to agree in the Lord. You are harming the body of Christ. How would you all feel? Oh, that's embarrassing. In one sense, yes, and should be. We should be embarrassed of our sins, especially if it's, when it's harming more people. But on the other hand, we must remember that's love. God's love in rebuking us. Those whom He loves, He corrects, He disciplines. And in His grace, sometimes it has to be public for us to see how selfish we are being and how harmful it is for the body. So, that's a very important lesson. Public reading as a public exhortation, and go to the whole church. And it's a warning for the whole body, because the whole church in Philippi, they held Yodia and Syntyche as pillars in that church. Godly women who stood with Paul and fought with Paul side by side. And that becomes a warning to all of us that we all, we all here, have the potential to become a hindrance in the unity of the church. All of us have sin within us that can cause us to be a problem to the church. So never think to yourself, oh, I'm free from that. I would never cause a problem in the church. Remember Syntyche. Remember Yodia. Women who fought side by side with the Apostle Paul. And now they are becoming the source of harm and disunity in the church. Every single member can become a potential danger to the harm of the harmony of the body. Therefore, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of, you, each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Or we can put Colossians chapter 3. Therefore, my beloved, chosen ones, clothe yourselves, put the garments of humility, 
Because we still have that Adamic garment, that garment from Adam, that many times tried to show its ugly head. And Paul said, no, 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 keep removing that garments from Adam and put the garments of Christ with love, patience, kindness, humility. So, we learn a few lessons about the public reading. First, we all have the potential to become an Iodia and a Sintiki. Second, it's part of love to be rebuked. Can you imagine if God never brought a person into your life to rebuke you, correct you, and exhort you? That would not be love. Amen? So, see godly, loving, reproof, rebuke, exhortation as an instrument of God's mercy in your life. Because once He stops rebuking you, once He stops reproving you, that means that His wrath is abiding in you. He no longer cares about you. But while He's exhorting, while He's rebuking, remember that's His mercy to call you to run to Him. Embrace Him. And lastly, Paul shows his great zeal for the unity of the church by mentioning these two ladies from the pulpit. It's as if he's saying, do you know what? I love the two of you. The two of you know how much I appreciate our friendship. But the unity of the church is more important than our friendship. I love the, the work of Christ, what Christ has done, more than your personal comfort. Yes, I know you two are feeling awkward as I'm public, publicly sh- telling your names, but remember something. The work of Christ is greater than your reputation. One scholar says, We, modern readers, can miss the strong sense in which Paul and the Philippians are accountable to each other. If we share this sense of accountability, we would also share in Paul's concerns over divisions within the body of Christ. We are far too indifferent to divisions within the body that do not directly involve us. Oh, that's just a problem between Zach and Luke. I'm not going to get involved with that. We forget that's the body. If we say... If we saw our stance before God or standing before God as bound up with the lives of others as strongly as Paul does, we would also share in Paul's concerns over divisions within the body. What seems scandalous is actually a sign of great love for the work of Christ. Second, second lesson we can learn from Chapter 4, verse 2. All the deep, all the beautiful, all the glorious doctrines that we learn, they must be applied in our lives. Some people love studying theology. And they have this massive head. And their hearts... Or just like a little tiny rock. 
You see, all the doctrine, all the theology that we learn must be applied into the life of the church in our lives. Human rights. I don't have here, but he says, for him, for Paul, there can be no dichotomy between reflection on the incarnation and the behavior that the incarnation requires of individual Christians. There can be no dichotomy between your knowledge. And some of you have a great knowledge about Christ, Christology, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of the church. But then the question is, how is that being applied into your lives? That's the key. How is that being applied to our lives? Because that's exactly what Paul is doing. He's getting the beautiful doctrine of Christ in chapter 2. He was God Himself, glorious, emptied Himself, took the form of a slave, and died on a cross. And He's applying, all right, all right, Eodia, all right, Sintiki, all that beautiful Christology. Now you need to apply to your life. You need to empty yourself. You need to humble yourself. You need to crucify yourself, the two of you, in order to preserve the unity here. So, if all the teaching, all the learning, all the sermons, some of you love listening to sermons. How is that being applied into your life? All the doctrine you're learning. How is that being developed, applied in the life of the church? And lastly, go back here. The unity, the unity of the church is more vital than our personal comforts and preferences. That's what Paul is letting us know with Philippians 4 too. The unity, preserving the unity of the church is more important than our personal likes and personal comforts. The unity of the church displays the unity of the Trinity. The Trinitarian work of Father, Son, and Spirit working together to bring people from all sorts of background and make them one in Christ. So when the church is not united, it's dishonoring the Trinity. Divisions and fractures in relationships in the church destroy the witness of the gospel. That's why Paul says, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to have the same mind in the Lord. And there's a lot of, I don't know, some of you have heard and read Francis, Francis Chan, Chan, Francis Chan, and he's a big name now in the evangelical, and he's all about this ecumenical unity. And it's a unity that's not biblical, it's not a unity in the Lord. And that's not what Paul is saying here. The unity that Paul is requiring is a unity among church members in the Lord. One scholar says, This is not simply a call to be friends again. Rather, Paul is calling these two women to display a set of habits and dispositions that he considers to be basic to living faithfully before God. 
The common pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting that Paul advocates here, advocates here is shaped and directed by Yodi and Syntyche's connection to the Lord, the union with Christ. Theirs is a friendship built and formed by a common friendship with Christ. Hence, a rupture in the friendship between Yodi and Syntyche also affects their friendship with whom? With Christ. If we believe, and we should, that we are united in Christ, a rupture, a problem in our relationship among brothers in Christ will inevitably lead to a problem in the relationship with whom? The one that unites them. So, as we... As we think about these things, as I was thinking about this and how to apply to our lives, there is a key question, I was thinking, there is a key question that we must ask ourselves when we have a crack, when we have a fracture in our relationship, and the question is, what brought us together? That's That's the most important question. What brought us, what united us? What united us? What brought us together? And then you think, what is dividing us? What is separating us? That's key. What brought us together and what is separating us? Let me tell you, the, what brought us together was not our own personalities style of music, the location where we gather together, financial status, was not homeschooling, Christian schooling, public schooling, political affiliation, social works, involvement with political issues. None of these things brought us together. None of these things brought us together. What brought us together was our one mind, one fronel, in what we believe, as is stated in our statement of faith. And when you become a member in your profession, your confession of membership, that's what brought us together. It was not political issues, political parties. Styles of parenting, style of music, style of preaching. None of this brought us together. Was our understanding of the gospel. And I have I have the church membership profession here. The all the members sign when you become a member. And it says, and if you have in your Bible, some of you have in your Bible your own. You, when you became a member of the church, that, that's all you're saying. I do now rely on His gracious aid, solemnly and joyfully profess my commitment to this local body of Christ. And then it goes on. Look at number two. That's what united us. I will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit 
in the bond of peace, uh, we walk together in brotherly love, exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. Uh, we rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. And then number seven, it says, How we work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as I sustain its worship ordinances, discipline, and the doctrines as stated in the statement of faith. What brought us together? When we have a, a conflict, what brought us together? What brought us together? The great love of Christ and our our common understanding of the major doctrines of the Christian faith, our commitment to one another, that's what brought us together. And then you're having a problem. You need to ask yourself, what is separating us? What is bringing disunity among us? Is there anything connected to the doctrinal, to my profession of love and care towards you? Or is just... A feeling that got hurt. You rubbed me the wrong way. Paul demands from the two sisters the holy obligation of reconciliation. And I know that there are times when there is no way, especially when we are dealing with doctrinal issues. But that's not what Paul is doing here. He's emphasizing a problem that's not doctrinal. It's not moral in the sense of breaking a clear commandment from Christ Himself. And He's saying, no, no, no. You need to humble yourselves, the two of you, and work this out. The easiest thing to do in our society is just to trash. Oh, you hurt me. Forget it. I'm not talking to you anymore. I'm walking away from this. To walk away from a relationship, to walk away from a church because you had your feelings hurt, that's the cowardly way of doing things. That's not the godly way. And when you leave the cowardly way, let me tell you, there is no blessing from God. And I have seen many churches, when people leave in an ungodly way, they live wandering from church to church. And they never, they can never grow and mature as Christians. And the Lord tests our hearts. He will test our hearts. The time is coming. He will test our hearts. He's going to say, Ben, what do you have in your heart? All this profession of affection that you have towards these members. All this profession of affection that you have towards Google. And then he brings a crack. In his providence, he lets a crack take place in our relationship. And says, show, show what's in your heart. And then we, what do we show? Do we show Philippians chapter 2? Or do we show the cow cowardly way? Just to walk away and trash the relationship. And here is the beauty and the power of the gospel. We see... For, for most people, that's too superficial. That's way too superficial. The gospel. You're giving me the gospel. Give me something 
more professional. For Paul, there is nothing deeper and more powerful than the cross of Christ. Every time he's dealing with a problem in the church, he takes them to the cross. And you know what? We are so arrogant that we think that the gospel is not enough. I need some professional help. I need the help of other people. The gospel. I'm going to give him the gospel. And that's exactly what Paul does. Because he knows that in the gospel there is the power of God to transform people. And here's the beauty of the gospel. As we are getting ready to partake of the Lord's Supper and celebrate. That's what the Lord's Supper is. That's what Paul, he, he tells the church in Corinth. That's embarrassing that you're taking the Lord's Supper. The church is all divided. That's a contradiction. And now you're going to partake of the Lord's Supper and proclaim that you are one body in Christ when you're all divided. And here's what we need to think. As we are preparing to partake and celebrate our unity with one another, our unity with Christ, is that the Gospel not only provides unity, but it provides deep affection towards one another. Because you can go to a lot of places outside and you're going to have a unity. You have people united for a goal, but they have no affections for each other. Where you're looking at a person and say, you are my brother, you are my joy, you are my crown. You see, that's what the gospel does. Not only provides unity, but it provides something much deeper. Affection, love, that you are so eager to maintain the unity that Christ bought. And you cannot see yourself as apart from that brother and sister. Father, we thank You for Your love towards us. Thank You for giving us this beautiful text of Scripture. How we need that, Lord. How we need Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. We need to be reminded of our union with You and our union with one another. Help us. Help us to go beyond and deeper than just trying to preserve the unity and behold the beauty that we have in the gospel of affection towards one another. That we can love, we can delight in one another. We can have each other as our crown. So thank you. Thank for your love, thank for your care towards us. And I pray, Lord, as we Get ready to partake of the Lord's Supper, that you'd be working our hearts, drawing us to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.